As we come to the scripture now, let me ask that you pray with me. Father, pray now for me and for us. This prayer of illumination that you would bring light to our souls, our minds, hearts. Enable us to see clearly that which is true, I pray, that it works deep, deep, deep within us. That nothing could budge us from this. No circumstance of life. No particular trial upon us. No relationship that we might have. No philosophy that may come our way. But nothing would move us from that which is true concerning Christ. Thus we pray that you would help us in these moments to hear, to listen, to believe, to follow. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Colossians and chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, please. I want to read just verses 21 to 23. Colossians and chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You can see this passage has informed all of our worship thus far, even as we come to confess our sins as those once alienated, even now still understanding our sins. But the great word of assurance that we were able to receive, that we've been reconciled by his death in order to present, to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then thus even this need to persevere, this if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. That has informed, like all passages that we have for our morning worship informs what we do as we prepare for it, as we come into the presence of God. It's important for us to learn to worship by way of the scripture. It's important that the scripture informs how we understand God, of course, how we approach him, how we come to him. It isn't how we might think we should, but rather how he is. And so we use every Sunday, you'll notice, I trust, our particular text, and it informs then how we approach God. It informs how we confess our sins, what we confess. It informs how we pray. It informs what we sing and and the attitude with which we sing and pray and all of that. So that's just very explicit. This morning, as we come to this particular passage, we realize that Paul is, is after something as he's talking, as he's writing to this church in Colossae. And what he's after is to make certain that they know that Christ, that Jesus, is utterly sufficient for them. They needn't trust in anyone, anything else. It's, it's crucial to him to, to lay that out. And that's the question then. Is Christ Christ really sufficient? Is he all we need for life? Can we sink our whole hope upon him? Is Christ in us, as he's going to say later on in chapter 1, is Christ in us really our hope of glory? That is our hope for that which is to come. That Christ is in us. Can we sink all of our understanding about God and who we are in life in Christ, 
is him, is in him, as Paul will say in chapter 2, hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Is Christ our life, as he will say in chapter 3? Christ, who is your life, is everything about our life really pertaining to Christ? Is he really to be preeminent, preeminent as Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is preeminent, that is, first in all things, first in history, first in the church, first in our lives. Does everything find its meaning and value in relationship to Christ? Is that really true? Is Christ worthy of our devotion? Paul writes that we're to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of Christ fully pleasing to him. Is is that really what life is all about? Are we really to to arrange our whole lives and beings around him, to live consistent with him, worthy of him, of who he is? Are we to live always conscious of pleasing him? Is, Is that really the very thing that should drive us? See, for Paul, Christ was the very essence of the gospel, the very good news, the fact that Christ has come, that Christ rules and reigns, that Christ is the one who's made reconciliation, we're to believe in him, to follow him. It was everything. Devotion to Christ was the very heart of one who believed in Christ. To be devoted to him, wholeheartedly committed, loyal, allegiant to Jesus. That's what it meant. To really be a Christian. That everything else would be submitted to Christ. Every other devotion. Any devotion to ourselves. Any devotion to other people. Any devotion to our jobs. Any devotion to our passions. Any devotions to our ambitions. Any devotion to anything would be submitted to Christ. Devotion to him would overshadow, overrule everything else. And all of that would be wholehearted. That is with great joy. It wouldn't be a burden. It wouldn't be a, 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 something that would be a hassle to us. But rather it would be a joy to us. We'd see Christ and, and, and say yes, everything should be submitted to him. Paul lays this out. He makes his case concerning Christ. You'll remember in chapter 1, it speaks of, of Jesus in verse, in verse 13 as the beloved son of God, the one who is king of the kingdom of light. If you want to live in the light, if you want to live where you can see clearly, if you want to live in purity, this is the kingdom to be in. This is the kingdom of, of the beloved son of Jesus. That's who he is. He's the one in whom we have redemption. That is, he's paid the ransom price so that we can be freed from bondage to, to sin. Freed from its penalty, freed from its power, ultimately freed from its presence. He's the one who's paid that ransom price. In him we have redemption, we have the forgiveness of sins. So in essence, Paul is building this case saying, why wouldn't you trust him? Why wouldn't you look to him for all wisdom and knowledge? Why wouldn't you say he is my life? Why wouldn't you make him serve him as the very one who is Preeminent. Why wouldn't you revolve your whole life around him? Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. To see him is to see God. He's the firstborn over all creation, meaning he is the creator. And all of creation is through him and, 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 and for him. He's the very purpose of it all. It's all to reflect, all to glorify him. 
In fact, he's the firstborn of creation, meaning he rules over all creation, both that which is visible and invisible. And any ruler that you see, Christ rules over. Any ruler that you can't see, that is, any ruler in spiritual realms, whether it be holy or not, ultimately will submit to Christ. He rules over them. There's nothing in all creation that isn't utterly dependent upon him. He holds all things together. He's dependent on none of it, all of it is dependent upon him. He sustains it all. He's Lord over creation, Paul's saying. Why wouldn't you trust that one? Of all the ones that you're going to trust, of anything that you're going to follow and submit to, to be devoted to, why wouldn't it be to this one? And why wouldn't it be wholehearted? He also is Lord over the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the very source of our life by way of his resurrection that he might be preeminent in all things. And he reconciles all things in heaven and on earth to himself. There's peace by the blood of his cross, and a day will come when we'll see it. And now as we come to these verses which I've read, we're coming very specifically to this idea, this concept, this work of Christ that brings reconciliation we hear that word reconciliation, we realize it means there must be, as he says here, some sense of alienation. There's some hostility. There's a separation, a division. And, and here we have the very point of the coming of Christ to bring reconciliation between people and God. And he says it very personally to them. And you, he's in speaking in the abstract here. He's saying to these believers in Colossae, he's saying, and you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You. But he gets really personal because he speaks to them as the before reconciliation picture. And he says of them, you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This sense of alienation. It's the result of sin. There's a sense in which Paul, being very personal, saying, you have sinned against God. The prophet Isaiah puts this alienation like this in Isaiah chapter 59 very quickly. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not here, there's this, this alienation that's caused by sin. We really can't get around it. Um, we can't get around thinking about sin. If we, if we obliterate sin from our consciousness, from our mind, from our understanding of life, then there's no real reason to think about Jesus. And so since we find ourselves, not surprisingly, in this context of church thinking about Jesus, we can't not think about sin. Because even to speak of him, even to raise the question of why, why him, why did he come, what did he do, then sin, this idea of it, this concept, this reality of it, sinks into our minds. We can't really avoid it. We begin there always, for if we don't, the rest of it makes no sense, no reason to go any further on. And so here even... The apostle says, and I want you to remember something. You were once alienated him because of your sin, your rebellion against God. And it's really an alienation. 
Because you see, this sin causes us to be selfish, self-centered, not God-centered. So we think of ourselves, not of God. And if the whole creation exists for Christ, and yet we're thinking of ourselves, you see the alienation that comes. Here's the purpose of it, yet we're moving in a different direction than that purpose would have us go. And so there we find ourselves. The implications are that we're cut off from God. We're cut off from life. I was giving thanks earlier in this service, this thanksgiving to God for his reconciliation for forgiveness of sins. As I was thinking about what to pray, I began to think about the fear of being alienated from God. Being alienated from life to think that my life would have no purpose. What would be the meaning of life if there's no connection to the one who made us? The one who has purpose laid out. And then the fear of facing him in the midst of that alienation. Just this sentence from the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah said that you've been separated from me, therefore I cannot hear you. Wow. To be alienated from God, to know that I'm alone, therefore, that my prayers would go unheeded, go unanswered. What great fear that would be, and the great blessing to know. Reconciliation. The way the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 17 is this way. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And there he's using the nations or the Gentiles to contrast with those who have the word of God. To walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. To think that every thought that I would have about life would be futile, would be vain, would be wrong, would lead really not to the right place. No matter how smart I was, no matter how much I desired to do the right thing even if I'm not in God, with Him, my thoughts are futile. They lead to nowhere, which means I would be training my children in futile thoughts. I would be training them in such a way that they would not end up where they would need to end up. They would not go where they would need to go because they would need to go to God. In the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And the ignorance that is in them isn't simply an I don't know. It's because of the hardness of their hearts. So therefore, the alienation which we all experienced prior to coming to faith wasn't an ignorance that said simply, I don't know, but was an ignorance that simply said, I don't want to know. Don't tell me. Because I want to go my own way. That's the, that's the amazing thing about darkness. It's content in its darkness. And as Jesus said, when light comes, it's not happy. It doesn't want that light because the light shows evil deeds. You see, this futility of mind, this hostility in mind, I'm against God, leads to deeds, the apostle says, that are evil. And he says to them, very forthrightly, as he would say to us, as he would say about himself, that alienation with God leads to hostility in mind, which leads to deeds which are evil. Now, that's an interesting expression. That's an interesting thing to say to someone. 
especially someone you don't particularly know. He, Paul had never been to this church. He never met these particular people. He was just simply saying, I know that your deeds were evil. And, and we think of that expression, evil deeds, and say, really, evil deeds? I mean, we know of evil deeds. We think of slavery in this country. We think of Stalin. We think of Hitler. We think of Columbine. We think of Virginia Tech. We think of um, Bernard uh, Madoff. We think of people like that, things like that, events like that. We say, no, that's really, really evil. But most of the people we know who aren't following Christ, we, would we say their deeds are evil? Would we say that our deeds before coming to follow Christ, would we say those deeds are evil? But Jesus puts it like this, Mark chapter 7, concerning evil deeds. Shocking to us because we, we have a tendency... As we look at those we know who aren't followers of Christ, even look at ourselves before we're followers of Christ, and we say, not only being evil, even hostile in mind, it's more like apathetic. It's more like I don't care. It's more like I never really think about God. And if I do think about God, I'm willing to say he exists. But that's it. So I'm I'm a nice person. Now, there's a really hostile in mind people. I mean, Richard Dawkins writes very negatively about God and about Christianity and the God delusion. Sam Harris writes very negatively and very critical of the Bible and of God as we understand him, as we know him, as he's revealed in the Bible uh, in, in his book, The End of Faith. Um, you know, uh, Bart Ehrman writes uh, negatively about Christians, about Christianity, about what we hold dear in his book, Misquoting Jesus. Which he does, by the way. Um, but again, hostile in mind, evil, we don't see that kind of thing taking place. We see more apathy, more ignoring of God. Jesus puts it like this. What comes out of a person, this is Mark 7, verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, when I read this list, sexual immorality, do we think of that as evil? Watching just the other night David Letterman speak of his son. David Letterman has a son. He is not married. He's very open about that. Um, Not to pick on him. I could randomly pick on many, speak of it. But no one even blinks. No one would sit on his show and say, David, that's evil. Jesus would say, sexual immorality is evil. We become so accustomed to it that In movies, it can be entertaining. Sexual immorality. Theft. Murder. Okay, murder. Evil. But in our own country, abortion. Adultery. We rename that indiscretion. Coveting. Would Madison Avenue live without coveting? 
we've made coveting an art form, a way of living. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality. Can't sell cars without sensuality. Watch the commercials. Envy, slander, pride. Could we have an election in this country without slander and pride? I mean, really. I mean, how can anyone run for elected office without standing up and saying, I am better than everybody else? Sometimes I think our elections are simply the WWF in suits, or is it WWE? Then this one, foolishness as evil. Foolishness as evil, Jesus says. What is foolishness? Foolishness is behaving as if there is no God. Foolishness is planning out your own life as if there is no God. Foolishness means not following the ways of God. We just sort of write that off. We just sort of said, oh, they're just... Foolishness as evil. All these evil things come from within. Could it be that we don't really call evil, evil, that which is evil, evil, even in our own lives, evil, because our moral discernment has been compromised. There's a story, it's apocryphal, I'm sure, meaning it's not really true. Some preacher probably made it up in order to illustrate this point, but I read it once and it does illustrate this point, so true or not, it's helpful. A story goes like this, there's a man who walks to work every day and in so doing on his way he stops at a shop that sells clocks and watches. Every day he peers in and he seems to stare at this one clock and goes on. He does that for a number of weeks. The shopkeeper notices that thinking he must really like that clock. I better talk to him and open the store early. Talk to him, see if I can sell him that clock. So the shopkeeper comes and he opens his door, goes outside, looks to the man and says, I notice that every day you come by and you look longingly at that beautiful clock in the window. May I help you? And the man kind of smiles and he says, ah, I must beg your apologies. You see, I have a watch and it's not very accurate. It doesn't keep very good time. But, but I'm the timekeeper at the fac- uh, factory down the street. And, and I'm the one who is in charge of blowing the four o'clock whistle, which is the time that everybody is to leave. And so it's a very important that I get four o'clock correct. And so every day I come by, I look at this clock and I set my watch by it. And the shopkeeper laughs and says, you know what, that clock doesn't keep very good time. In fact, I set it every afternoon by the four o'clock whistle. <laughs> we stare at our culture. And if we set our clocks by the culture, when the culture tries any time to set its clock by us, We'll all be wrong. And so the apostle says, I want you to understand what Christ has done. For me to help you to understand what Christ has done, I want to take you all the way down and I want to tell you that you were alienated from God. Your mind was hostile towards him. And your deeds... Though they may have looked fine, though at worst it may have been apathy 
towards God, just simply going your own way, not minding your own business, not speaking of him positively or negatively or any of that, need to understand that that is evil in his sight. But there is hope for you. And here's how he puts it, of course. We know this, the very essence of the gospel. He says, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's saying, listen, I want, I want you to know that there is reconciliation. And again, reconciliation is a word that, that begins because of alienation, begins by separation. And just like other words that we use for our salvation, it presents us in one light and then in another. For instance, we use the word justification to explain who we now are in Christ Jesus as by way of our salvation. The word justification first sees us in our guilt before God and then as those who have been declared righteous by him to be justified, guilty yet declared righteous by God. Think of the word redemption. It's a word we use. It's in this book of Colossians. We've mentioned it a number of times. It sees us first, this word redemption, sees us first in bondage and then sees us freed by way of a ransom price having been paid. This word reconciliation sees us as alienated from God, enemies really, because of our sin and then sees us as reconciled friends from hostile enemies to becoming the very friends of God, being reconciled. And all of this we know by way of Christ. And again, this is the essence of the gospel. There's so much confusion over this in our day. What is the essence of the gospel? Everything I pick up to read, I find people wondering, what really is the essential nature of the gospel, the guts of the gospel? And it's really simple. Not simple in the sense that it isn't profound wisdom. Not simple in the sense that it wasn't costly to the father to give his son not costly to Jesus to voluntarily come and and die and experience what he experienced for us but simple in the sense that it's straightforward as we read through the scripture we see the sin of Adam and Eve in chapter 3 we see the promise of God to send someone who will crush the serpent's head we see throughout the Old Testament the picture of this one who is to come we see him as the sacrifice we see him as the priest we see him as the prophet we see him as the king we see him in all of those structures in ancient Israel all of that building for us we see it in the coming of Jesus the announcement of his birth that he will save his people from their sins we, we see even him speaking of his kingdom we see him in the, in the death which he suffered in the explanation which he gave and the explanation given by the apostles who were with him in came after him, all teaching the same thing concerning this gospel. It is that there's reconciliation in his body by his flesh. In his body, the very person of Jesus, God, man, God with us. In his flesh, that is, he took on human flesh, not sinful by its very nature, but in so taking on this flesh, he took upon himself the guilt of our sin and he paid that that we would be free redeemed declared righteous forgiven sins reconciled to God he did all that we need 
And here is his purpose. He says this reconciliation will lead to a presentation. You, me, being presented as the crown of Jesus, if you will. His accomplishment. He will present us to his Father, holy. Can you imagine that? Blameless, without blemish. That's language they used of the Old Testament lambs that were perfect to go before God. That's language they used of Jesus, perfect, unspotted, unblemished lamb. They speak of us that way. Above reproach, that is. In this presentation to the Father, you can even get this sense that the Father will say, does anything, anyone have anything, any, anything against this person as to why I shouldn't receive him? And the room will stay silent. We won't even be able to think of anything to say. We'll need no defense. Jesus will be there for us. He will cover us so thoroughly, completely. We'll stand before the Father, holy, blameless, without reproach. That's the reason for our reconciliation. And then he says, if, big if. And we think, wait a minute. This sounded so good till now. Why this if? Well, this if is a reasonable if. This if is a logical if. This if is saying, if you're truly one who has been reconciled, this will be true for you. Because this is what reconciliation brings. Reconciliation brings a union between you and God in such a way that you will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This sense of continuing in the faith. To be reconciled to God means that now you have a new home. So the word continue is the same word that is often translated, or at least the root of the same word that's often translated in the Gospels as abide. The word abide means to live in, to stay home, to to be here. When Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you, he's saying, live in me. Make your new home in my sphere. And I will make my home with you. And this sense of abiding always has this sense of permanent residence. That's why you could call your home, your house, your abode. It's not common language for us today, but, but, but that's your abode. That's where you live. That's where you stay. And, 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 and Paul is saying, I want you to continue to live in the faith. Continue to stay there. Never leave it. Why would you? You've been reconciled to God. You're now part of him, he part of you. you. There's no separation. Why would you leave? Why would you not continue? He says, continue in this faith. We know from the promises of Jesus that he will stay with us. He will preserve us. Uh, Jesus speaks of this very forthrightly in John chapter 10. He speaks of, of being held in the Father's hand. This is verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus gives us an illustration of what he means by that in the life of the Apostle Peter. You might remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. And, and you know what would happen with Peter. He would deny Jesus. But, but the amazing thing, he would be reconciled to Jesus. It wouldn't be his, even his undoing. And Jesus puts it like this, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Metaphor, obviously. But it doesn't sound pleasant. Someone came to you and you said, how was your day? And they very honestly looked you in the eye and said, I feel as if I've been sifted like wheat. You would think it has not been a good day, right? And so when Satan wants to do that to you, forthrightly, directly, you know. Notice how Jesus put it, verse 32. But, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so he's saying, listen, I've prayed for you. So you'll make it through this. It won't look like it at the time, perhaps, but you'll make it through this. We know what happened in the life of Peter. That he then denied Jesus, but upon seeing the risen Christ, believed was restored. Notice what Jesus is doing even today, Hebrews in chapter 7. In verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, that is completely, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus continues to pray for us. He prayed for Peter. The end result of his praying for Peter is even though it could have, was difficult and even though he wondered about it, but still Peter came through. Jesus prays for us even though we experience trials and difficulties, sometimes even doubts. We know that we'll come through. Why? Not because of us, but because of him. But the word, the warning, the admonition to us, the thing which will enable us to, to, to grab hold of all that God has for us, even as he grabs hold and never lets go of us. He says, now I want you to understand that the life of one who's been reconciled to God is a life of one fully devoted to Christ. So, continue in the faith. Firm. Steadfast. Never letting go. Always living in him. And we do that. We stay home, if you will, in Jesus. By most certainly praying, as we did earlier in our service. Praying that God will enable us to persevere. I don't know how you pray for yourself, or you pray for your spouse, or you pray for your friends, or you pray for your children, how you pray for the church. But, but the way that I pray is I pray that God will enable us to persevere. He will give us strength. He will keep us. I know that he will, but I I need to say it. I I need to express it. I need to show that, yes, my life is one, one of weakness and I need his strength. That's the essence of Jesus' expression. Lead us not into temptation. We don't think Jesus is going to dangle stuff before us. But in our own weakness, he teaches us to pray, God, I'm weak. Please don't take me into trials that I'm going to 
fall, where I'm going to fall. So lead us not into temptation, but rather deliver us from any evil that might be in any circumstance and in any situation. So we pray. We pray that God will enable us to persevere. He'd enable us. He'd strengthen us. He would be, he would be with us. Again, Paul praying for them in chapter 1 that they be filled with all knowledge of the knowledge of God's will. They'd be filled with it. They would be compelled to follow the very will of God. That they would indeed live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, that they would bear fruit. That they would increase in their knowledge of God. That they would endure with patience and joy. And they would always give thanks. He prays for them, that that would be true of them. So we, we pray, we stand firm by way of prayer. It isn't we say, oh yes, all is well, forget this. No, all is well, remember this. All is well, continue in this. All is well, thus I'm reconciled to God, he'll hear me. Why wouldn't I pray to him? And lay out my deepest concerns and fears and weaknesses before him that he would enable me to continue on strong and steadfast with him. We come to the scripture to receive strength. The great story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus contrasts two men who've built two houses, one built on the rock, one built on the sand. The difference between the two is that the one man was wise, the other was foolish. The one man was wise because he heard these words of Jesus. He heard them, he knew them, meditated upon them, lived in them, and did them. And so we stay firm by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. We hear the word of God and we act upon it. We, we do it. We serve Christ. Thus by way of prayer, by way of knowing and doing the word and by our fellowship together, encouraging one another on. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't stop assembling Continue to assemble. Why? Because you need to be together. Why? Because you need to encourage one another as long as it's called today so that your hearts aren't hardened. This is a means of grace to us. It's a means of grace to see each other, to know each other, to be each other's company and fellowship and to speak to one another that which is true. We need that. Without that, we are in great danger. So we come together for those words. Why? Because we know something's going to take place. Because of what Christ has done, making peace. Because of what Christ has done, bringing reconciliation. We know that a day will come when we'll be presented to God, holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Now that's an after that is in great contrast to the before. So much so that it gives us great hope. Let's pray, Father in heaven. I pray for me and for us that we would get this, that we would really, really get it. That we would know what Christ has done. And the reason for which he has done it, yes, for your glory, but for our ultimate good. So I pray for me, for us, that you would enable us to persevere as we have prayed, as we have heard from your word, we pray that you would enable us to persevere. Thank you, God, for the perseverance of our dear friend and brother, Delbert Earhart. He celebrates his 93rd birthday. 
Father, we're grateful for him. We thank you for all that he means to us. Continue, I pray, to keep him in good health physically and spiritually. That you would enable him to tend well to his soul. That he will continue on in the faith as he's done firm and steadfast. Father, we pray for those who are suffering. We pray for the family of Louise Zilkis. They mourn her passing, most especially for David and Garrett Andrew on the loss of their grandmother. Pray for Mim McGrogan as she battles this infection in her body. Please be with her. Strengthen her. Establish her more deeply even in the faith. Help Erin as she continues to care for her mom. For Heather Lessig, Father, as she deals with this new wrinkle situation in her life of epilepsy, I pray for the doctors. Father, that you would help them, help her, for Eric as he loves his wife, and for their children too, I pray. Father, for those who are laboring in many ways in the front lines, I pray for Chase and Jillian Pettis, Father, for Chase's new position with Navigators as he uh, is their director of short-term missions and mid-term mobilization for the international ministries. With the Navigators, I pray for him, God, that you would give him wisdom beyond his years. You would help him to sustain great faith in you that he can encourage those in the field, that you would give him good discernment as he evaluates those who desire to go, that you would help him in the training of those who will go and who are there even now. For Karen Pankratz with Naz, Father, I pray for her as well as she makes preparation for her move to New York City. Bless her ministry there and please help her in all of that. For the Lieben Goods for Kelly and Marietta's, Kelly finishes up his dissertation. We pray that you would align their lives in such a way that they would know their next step, give them wisdom and help. And we pray that their heart's desire to minister in Central America will be granted. So bless them, help them, please. We give thanks for the birth of children to the Knutsons, to the Farleys. We thank you for that. We pray for the parents that you would grant them grace in the midst of whatever trial they may come upon. Give them hearts of thanksgiving for the blessing they now have. Help them, please, we pray. For us in our lives, God, as we share the gospel in this community, we pray that we would be light uh, and salt here, that we would not be so taken by the culture that we would be unhelpful to the culture, that we would be so not wanting to be judgmental that we would lose our prophetic word. We don't want to be judgmental, God, but we want to still remain sharp to be able to know what pleases you and what doesn't. And please give us a way into the lives of others that we might share with them the good news that you have convinced us of, convinced them as well. Father, help us in these days of difficulty and recession for those who lead our country. We pray for them that you would cause them to think righteously. Help them, Father. May we not be fixed on that which is material, may that not be our hope. May you use this time to 
Release us, free us from that bondage. Uh, Help us. Father, we delight in you. We give you thanks for this reconciliation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.